We're continuing to look at the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. These are the marks that the Spirit produces in the lives of those who have a a true and living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Spirit comes into the life of a believer, he comes to bring reformation and transformation. And uh, what Paul is describing here in these verses is the, the shape of the transformation that the Holy Spirit aims to bring. So another way of looking at the fruit of the Spirit is simply to say this, that the fruit of the, the Spirit is a description of the normal Christian life. Now, Paul is not talking about a super saint here. He is talking about the, the marks. He is describing the shape and character of the normal Christian life. But, but also remember that as Paul describes this work of grace in the lives of God's people, that he has also told us that this fruit is produced by the Spirit within the context of conflict. That uh, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, keeps us from doing the things we want to do, Paul says back in in verse uh, 17. And so Paul is not saying that there will be an automatic production of this fruit in our lives. He's not suggesting either that we sit back and and wait for this fruit to crop up within our lives. Rather, I think he is saying that the Spirit of God produces this fruit in the Christian life, and he produces it within the context of a life engaged in a conflict as we seek to walk in step with the Spirit of Christ. In other words, we could say that these graces of Christ, which the Spirit comes to reduplicate in in the lives of believers, are graces that are hard won. These are are, uh, fruits that that are grown and developed within the context of conflict and struggle. And so they will not be had without struggle, without us giving ourselves to the means of grace and the resources that God has given us for living the Christian life. Today we're going to look at joy. Uh, The fruit of the Spirit is joy. The, The normal Christian life is adorned by the fruit of the Spirit of joy. The normal Christian church is marked out in this world by joy. Well, before we read these verses once again, let me, uh, let me pray briefly and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, we pray that uh, you would sanctify us with your truth, for your word is truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Let's hear God's word. Once again, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
What's the, uh, what's the answer to the first question of the shorter catechism? What is the chief end of man? What is man's chief purpose? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. A bunch of Puritans wrote that and they are reminding us that the chief purpose of our existence, the chief end of our lives is to glorify God and to have joy in God. That part of our chief purpose in life is to find joy in God and everything he has done for us in the gospel. To say with the psalmist, God is my joy and my delight. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? As we think about those words, I think it's right to say that joy is or belongs to the very essence of the Christian life. And Peter talks about this joy in his, his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, which we'll uh, turn to later this morning. He <coughs> speaks about this kind of joy. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He goes on later in those verses to say, Though you have not seen Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So a hallmark of, of the believing life of, of being in union with Jesus Christ, of being a child of God and, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit is an inexpressible joy that is filled with glory. Now, something to notice about that, though, is Peter writes those words about believers who don't have it easy. Uh, he, he writes those words to Christians who know a thing or two about suffering. He, he's not writing to a group of people who, you know, have it easy. Sometimes maybe we know some of those folks. We look at their lives and it just seems like everything goes their way. That they haven't experienced a trial in their lives. No wonder they're joyful, we might say to ourselves. Well, here you have the Apostle Peter writing to a group of believers who experienced various trials, who, who knew disappointment and suffering and even persecution for the sake of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, yet he can say of them that they were men and women who rejoiced despite all of their hardships and all of the difficulties and disappointments and challenges of being strangers in this world. They rejoiced, Peter says, with an inexpressible joy that is filled with glory. And this morning, I want us to think about that kind of joy, this spirit-generated joy. And I want us to look at several New Testament passages and say four things about this kind of joy. The first passage I want us to think about is John 15, verse 11. Now, this is Jesus speaking in John 15, Verse 11, and what I want us to see here, friends, is that Jesus wants us to experience joy. Uh, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's Jesus in the upper room speaking to his disciples. There's Jesus when he's just about to give himself over to be the sin bearer of his people. He's about to give himself over to the cross. And what is it that Jesus is thinking about here? Well, he thinks about a lot of things in the upper room discourse, but specifically in this verse, what does Jesus have on his mind? He has on his mind the joy of his disciples. That we might know his joy, the fullness of joy, a Jesus-like joy. It's remarkable when you think about it. He is preparing himself and his disciples for his death and his departure. And what's he talk about? His desire for his people to experience joy. My friends, Jesus wants his followers to experience gospel joy. The kind of joy that Jesus knows himself. The kind of joy that Jesus knows from eternity in fellowship with his heavenly father. The joy of the, of the trinity. The, the, the joy of communion between the father and the son. Joy in each other. That joy Jesus has in the all satisfying embrace and love of his father. That's the joy Jesus wants you and I to know. And in this, in this world, you know, substantial joy, if we're honest, is, is a rarity. You know, people go from, from one thing to the next trying to find some kind of joy in their lives. And maybe they find temporary joys, fleeting joys. But at the end of the day, they find themselves empty-handed. They come up empty. They find, find their joys like sand slipping through their fingers. But Jesus is saying, see what he's saying here? That as one of his disciples, as someone who trusts him and belongs to him, And loves him. He wants you to know know that you can have joy. He wants you to have joy. The fullness of joy. Jesus-like joy. He wants his joy to be in you. And he wants it to, to be full, he says. That's his desire for you. That's why he died. That's why he, he laid down his life for his people. That's why... He was willing to be cursed on the cross. That's why he was willing to endure the shame of the cross. And be cursed by his father. In order that you and I might know gospel joy. And so this morning as we begin to think about Christian joy. This is the first thing I want us to get into our heads. And and hopefully into our hearts dear friends. That we we have a savior who wants us to experience joy, the fullness of joy. And that's the first thing I want us to see. Here's the second thing that I want us to see this morning from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. So first of all, Jesus wants our joy. And in Philippians 4, verse 4, we see that in the Christian life, joy is commanded. We all know Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
Well, we've probably got that verse memorized just because we've heard it so many times. But when we actually pause to think about what Paul is saying, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? How can Paul command joy? Because we usually, we usually think of joy as a sort of involuntary feeling that comes and goes. You either have it or you don't. Uh, but here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he is commanding Christians to rejoice, to, to express their joy. And that sounds kind of strange to us, I think. Just, you know, just try to, next time you're in an argument with your spouse or, or some conflict at work, say to yourself, I'm going to be joyful now. I'm, I'm going to will myself to rejoice. Actually, I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. Um, Here's the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. And he's facing an execution sentence. The possibility of death. Now, eventually he he would be released in in this situation. But Paul didn't know that at the time he's writing this letter. At the beginning of the letter, he, he talks about... The, the possibility of he doesn't know whether he's going to live or be killed. It might be the Lord's plan for Paul to go home to be with the Lord. So here is a man who is facing the possibility of an execution. Who has known suffering and rejection. And here he is commanding Christians to rejoice. And throughout this letter, he himself has been rejoicing. Well, what can we say about that? I think one thing we can say to apply that to ourselves is, you know, sometimes, sometimes we just really need to get a hold of ourselves. You know, what I'm about to say, I understand this, it doesn't apply to every individual in every circumstance, so, so don't hear it that way. But, you know, you can, you can work yourself into a depression, You can can work yourself into always seeing the worst side of things. You can work yourself into always drawing the worst possible conclusions. But there is a difference, of course, between being being a realist and being a pessimist. And sometimes, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we just just want to be miserable. And, and you want others to feel your misery. You know, oh, you're joyful, that's great, but I've got this thing to be miserable about, and I want you to feel that misery too. But what's that called? I mean, we call it a pity party, because that's exactly what it is. And if we're honest with ourselves, at one time or another, we've all thrown ourselves a pity party. You know, I did it this week. Actually, um, you know, earlier in the week, I, was, I just had a frustrating start to the week and wasn't making a lot of progress in some of the projects that I have in front of me. And, uh, you know, my, my, heart, my heart was cold and I was having actually a difficult time making, making any progress and preparing for the sermon this week. And I, I got to the point where I just needed to take a break and so I started. To, I tried to do some some home repairs, and that failed miserably too. And uh, I just I got really upset, and I started to have a pity party. And you know what I did? I, I drug Kelsey into it. 
because I wanted her to, to feel how, uh, how bad things were. You know what I needed to do? I needed to repent. Because at the bottom of all of that, the base sin of all of that, or the base sins at the, at, at, at the bottom of all of that are the sins of, of pride and self-centeredness and thinking that, you know, I, I, I don't deserve this. Or I'm not experiencing or getting the things that I expect. And so we throw a pity party. And if we let those sins run loose, you see where it leads us. It inevitably leads us to being angry towards others. Perhaps even angry towards God. To say, I'm not going to be joyful because I have this grievance. I've got this complaint and this disappointment in my life. And then Philippians 4.4 comes. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It is a command and it is a challenge, I think, for for you and I. You know, the culture around us, I think, would say that that joy, well, they they probably would talk about joy in the same way that they talk about love. Right? It's a feeling that comes or goes. we, We fall in and out of love. I just don't feel that way anymore, people say. But you understand that in the Christian life, our understanding of love and joy are are entirely different. You know, love and joy are a fruit of the Spirit, and love and joy are commanded in the Christian life. And it's as we embrace the command to rejoice in all things that the Holy Spirit is at work cultivating this fruit in our lives. Now for sure, you know, one of the things we need to to maybe say along the way here is that this experience and the expression of this joy will vary among us. And the simple reason for that is, is because you and I are not the same person. And you and I will experience and express joy in, in different ways. Now, you know, I think, it's, I think it's right to say that there are parts of our personality that sometimes we affirm that maybe we should not. But then there are other times, you know, there are other parts of our personality that I think are God-given and good, created by God. But the command comes to all of us, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. And, and yes, at times I think that joy ought to, you know, bubble up at times in terms of expressing itself outwardly in words of praise and, and, and adoration. But the question I think we need to ask ourselves is, is how, how, how are we doing with this, this command? You know, what's on, what's on your list of <coughs> things to be angry about, things to be miserable about? That list for some of us might be, might be very long, and for, for some of us, you know, some of the things on that list are legitimate things to be upset about. You know, the pain is real. The, the hurt is genuine. The disappointments are there. And then here comes the command. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. And so we've seen that Jesus wants our joy, that joy is... Commanded in the Christian life. And now I want you to see that the joy that is commanded is not a groundless joy. Instead, I I want us to see that as Christians, we always have grounds. 
for joy. I want you to see that from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. I think it's in verse 6, Peter again says, In this you rejoice. What's the this refer to? The this refers to the glorious salvation that Peter had been explaining in verses 3 through 5. And <coughs> in the New Testament, uh, you know, the word salvation, it is, it is a comprehensive word. It is, it is a word that, that holds together the whole of God's redeeming and saving work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think about the word salvation, I think it's also right to say that there is both a negative and a positive side to it. When we think about salvation negatively, what we mean is that Jesus Christ saves us from sin. Jesus Christ saves us from the guilt of sin and the dominion of sin and, and the presence of sin one day. The work of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save his people from the condemning guilt of their sin. And from, from the, the reigning power of sin. And one day save them altogether from the presence of sin. And that's why we can call Jesus Savior. Because Jesus has done everything necessary in order to save his people from their sins. But there's not only a negative side to our salvation. It's not just that we are saved from sin. We are also gloriously saved for something else. Better yet, we are saved for someone else. We are saved from sin and saved for God. We are saved for fellowship with God. And for Peter, I think in this passage, that is actually the primary grounds of Christian joy. Not only that we are saved from our sins, but that we are saved for God. Because the ultimate reality of our salvation is union and communion with the triune God. We could say, I think rightly, that, that salvation from sin, as, yes, as gloriously true and important as that is, is actually a means to a greater end. It is a means to Fellowship and communion with God that forms the basis of Christian joy. And I think Peter says four things here that give us grounds for joy that I just want to briefly reflect upon with you in these verses. In, in the beginning of the passage, Peter says, we have, been, we have been born again. God has given us a new start He's given us new life, a new beginning. The work of Jesus Christ has secured for his people a new start with a new heart. And, and that means that, as the Bible talks about it, God has taken away our, our hearts of stone and he has replaced them with, with hearts of flesh that now beat for God. Yes, imperfectly. Yes, with fits and starts along the way. But a heart that genuinely loves Jesus Christ. And now lives unto God. And secondly, Peter says that we have been born again to a living hope. That the gospel gives us a living hope. in a living savior. Not a hope that will die with us in death. 
Understand, Christians are the only people in the world, dear friends, that have a hope that will not die with them in death. They have a hope that will survive the grave. You know, we know people, perhaps we are these people who who have all kinds of hopes, but all of those hopes at the end of the day are earthbound hopes. Hopes about our future, hopes about our, our career, hopes for our family, hopes for relationships, or whatever. And the reality is that all of those hopes die with us in death. But you see what Peter is saying in Jesus Christ, God has given us a living hope, a hope that cannot die. Because it has been signed and sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ who lives forevermore. Now Peter goes on here and, and says a third thing about the positive side of salvation. Giving us grounds for hope. Peter says it involves an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. Christ has won for us an eternal inheritance that will never spoil and never fade. And it's being kept for those who believe. This is what the gospel has brought us to in Jesus. An eternal inheritance. So my friends, what is this eternal inheritance for Christians? It's not, it's not just going to heaven when you die. It's, again, as gloriously true as that is. In this intermediate state when we lie in the grave and Depart from our bodies and, and go in spirit to be with the Lord. But that is not the ultimate end. What is our eternal inheritance? What does, what does Paul say? Is it, is it in Romans chapter 4? I, I could be wrong about that. I think it's Romans chapter 4 when, when, when Paul says that along with Abraham we are heirs of the world. The entire cosmos. A, a, a recreated world, a world free of sin. And then later on in Romans chapter 8, he says that we are co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God. <laughs> Try to take that in, that in Jesus Christ, we are heirs of the everlasting God's. What is our inheritance as Christians? Dwelling with God in a new heavens and new earth in perfect fellowship with God forever. That's our future. And then verse, or the, the fourth thing Peter says, because I think the question would naturally arise as you're reading this, how, you know, how, can I, how can I know that I'll obtain this inheritance? How do I know that I'll stay the course? Notice that Peter says this inheritance is being kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. In other words, the work of Jesus Christ has secured for you not only a new birth, not only a living hope and an eternal inheritance, but, but preserving grace. God will see to it. God will see to it through the instrumentality of your faith. So Peter says, God will guard you through faith. And you see, this is why Peter can go on to say in verse 6 to these folks, in this you rejoice. And in verses 8 and 9, 
You are filled with an inexpressible joy filled with glory because you are receiving even now the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Saying you are already a partaker of these these great realities. And so Christian joy is grounded in salvation. It's grounded in both the positive and the negative side. Salvation from sin, salvation for God. And so Jesus wants our joy. Joy is commanded in the Christian life. Joy is grounded in the saving work of God in both its negative and positive aspects. Now here's the last thing I want us to say. And I think we need to say this. That Christian joy exists in sanctifying tension with the sufferings of this present life. Christian joy coexists in sanctifying tension with the sufferings of this present life. And we don't need to leave 1 Peter 1 because Peter talks about that very thing. Look again at what he says in verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's Peter saying there? He, He is saying that Christian joy is not the absence of pain. Christian joy is not the same thing as having fun. We, you know, we say that to people today, don't we? Go on and enjoy yourself. Well, let's remember that Paul was in prison and he wasn't having fun. But Paul was rejoicing. Christian joy is not the absence of pain, grief, trials, disappointments, discouragements, tribulations, persecution, and on and on and on we could go. He is saying, though, that this side, this side of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that joy will never be uncontested. Joy will never be uh, unmixed. But at the very same time, Christian joy is as real in times of sorrow as it is in times of happiness. Now, how can that be? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. How can that be? Because Peter's answer is that even in the midst of those trials... God is accomplishing his good, sanctifying purposes. See what Peter's saying? Peter Peter is writing to people who are in the midst of, of severe trials. But he wants them to understand what's really going on. He wants to, them to see what's happening in their lives from a proper perspective. That these trials are not an accident. That these trials are, are not the result of, of bad luck. That these are God-ordained and the God-governed means by which our Father in heaven intends to refine and to perfect our faith. He wants us to shine in glory and he wants all of our lives to result at the end of the day in the praise and the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to understand this, that, that joy in the Christian life coexists in sanctifying tension with the present sufferings of this world. And as long as we live in this fallen world, we will find ourselves in trials and difficulties, and and we cannot 
escape that. And so maybe it's necessary here to, to, to give a word of caution. Be, beware, dear friends, of false spiritualities that would have you believe that the Christian life is a cakewalk. Think about it this way. You know, our, our Father ordains trials to purify our faith. Jesus, as we sang earlier, calls us to to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And when the spirit comes to dwell within our hearts, what does that indwelling result in but the initiation of a lifelong conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil? The Christian life is not easy, dear friends, but it is glorious and it is filled with an inexpressible joy. And so we can say in the midst of trials, yes, Yes, it's hard going, but nothing can separate me from the love of God, my Father, for me in in Jesus Christ. And my Father is at work for my ultimate good, which is to make me more and more, to conform me more to the moral glory of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Christian joy, you see, it, it rejoices in the midst of trials, But the Bible actually goes another step. You remember the words of James in James chapter 1 verse 2? What does James say? He says, count it all joy when you are greeted by various trials. Count it all joy when you are greeted by trials. How how can he possibly say that? Only... If you believe, and I don't just mean, you know, intellectually in your mind affirming these truths, but I mean really clinging to them, believing in the absolute sovereignty and providence of God. That's the only way we can really say with James, count it all joy when you meet various trials. Only if you believe in God's sovereignty and providence that that the trials and difficulties in my life and in your life are are not meaningless. That these trials and difficulties are not bad luck that my Father in heaven has not forgotten me or abandoned me. It's it's knowing that before the foundation of the world he, he set his love and affection upon me and as the As the Lord of history in the fullness of time. He he sent forth his son to save me from my sins. And save me for himself. And he holds me in the palm of his hands. And he will never ever let me go. And therefore he works all things together. Together for the good of those who love him. Not, Not just the good things. But but the hard things too. Well, the horrendous things that happen to God's people. If I could just boil this all down, beloved, to one, one final point. Uh, somebody asked Martin Luther once, what is a Christian? And Martin Luther, uh, he thought about it for a minute and he answered, he said, a Christian is someone who knows that they are loved. Was Martin Luther's answer? Now we know people, and or maybe you're this person that 
because of horrendous things that have happened in your life, horrible things that have been done to you, you, you have a hard time believing that, that you are loved. And you look on suspicion, uh, with suspicion, to, on anyone that would show love to you. You see, you see what the gospel tells us, dear friends, that whatever happens in our lives, we can know this one thing, that in Jesus Christ we are loved by a sovereign God who is working out his wise purposes. You see how that gives us grounds for joy. So count, all, count it all joy when you meet trials. Paul, Paul says in, in Romans 5 verse 4, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so as we wrap up here, just go back with me for a moment to the upper room. Uh, in the words of, of our Lord Jesus. You know, before he laid down his life, what was he thinking about? He, he was thinking about a lot of things in the upper room discourse. He was thinking primarily about his father's glory and being restored to his glory. But... Among the things he had on his heart, dear friends, was our joy. The fullness of joy. Jesus-like joy. He, he knows. He knows your situation. He knows your troubles and your trials. And in the midst of them, he wants you to know true, deep gospel joy. A joy that is, that is commanded, but it's a glorious joy because it's grounded in in the saving work of God. And it's a joy that presently this side of glory is expressed and experienced in the context of conflict and trials. You know, there are things I don't understand. There are things you won't understand. There are questions you and I might have, but we won't get the answer to them. But there's this thing that we can know that because I belong to Jesus Christ, this trial in my life is part of my Father's plan for me to make me more and more like Jesus. And, and you see, when, when we recognize that, we can embrace this command that comes to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And may it be that we as a congregation know, know more of this joy as a church. And may it be that as individuals we know more of this spirit-generated, spirit-produced gospel joy in our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder that Jesus wants our joy. That he wants us to know the fullness of joy. We thank you for this command, for we need to hear it afresh. And we are grateful that our joy has grounds, grounds in the everlasting salvation that you have worked for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask for your spirit to work in our lives, that in the midst of conflict and in the midst of trials and difficulties, we might indeed answer this call and this command to rejoice in the God of our salvation. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.